the unsolved murder of Georgia Cruz. Montverde, Florida is a small tight-knit community approximately 36 miles west of the booming city of Orlando. During the 80s, the minuscule town boasted of having around just 400 residents. It was a common place for residents to leave their doors unlocked at night without qualms. Everybody knew their neighbor and felt safe. The town was bordered by Lake Apoca, Apoca on one side, on the other, thriving citrus groves. Unfortunately, however, in 1980, this lakeside town just off the Florida Pandale, Panhandle was the scene of a murder that would leave the residents more than unsettled. One resident of Montverde was 12-year-old Georgia Cruz. Georgia was a student of Minnesota Elementary School who lived in Highlands Avenue with her mother Linda and her father Mike and her two older brothers, 15-year-old Charles and 16-year-old Tony. The fifth grader had a baby blonde hair and brown eyes. She absolutely adored her bulldog, Tiger, and had a penchant for Kenny Rogers. Her favorite snack was Rice Krispies, and in her free time, she designed and even sewed her own clothes. On the weekend, she would go to Sunday school at the local United Methodist Church. On the afternoon of 8th April 1980, George's parents left the family home to go fishing for catfish at Lake Florence with Charles. This was common occurrence in the Cruz household. Mike worked as a commercial fisherman, and Lake Florence was literally a stone throw away from their front door. This day, however, Georgia and Tony both decided to stay at home. At some time between 5.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. that evening, Georgia and Tiger left home to go to the stop-and-go on Country Road 455, where her mother worked. Stop-and-go, which was approximately a mile from Georgia's home, was the only convenience store in the town. Dusk was fast approaching, and Georgia was mortally afraid of the dark so she wouldn't be long, she assured her brothers. Georgia was wearing jeans, a tank top, and was barefoot, one of her many quirks. She had wanted to purchase snacks before settling down at her friend's house to enjoy Kenny Rogers in The Gambler. Georgia never made it to her friend's house. In fact, she never made it to the convenience store. When Georgia didn't arrive home within an hour, Tony rushed around the neighborhood calling out her name. Outside, Tiger sat on the crossroads just down the street from their home, refusing to move. When Linda and Mike returned home to find frantic Tony exclaiming that Georgia hasn't come home from the shop, they called police. At midnight, a search was already underway. Shoulder to shoulder, the search party, assisted by Georgia's family, trudged through the woodland and through the orange groves. Lake Florence, near the family home, was dragged but to no avail. Investigator called in the bloodhound named Lieutenant Bo, who was sent through the surrounding swampland in search of the scent. A search helicopter was sent into the sky for a bird's eye view. There was no sign of Georgia other than a trail of child-sized footprints in the dusty roadway leading from her home. Due to being so similar in age, Chuck and Tony took Georgia's disappearance especially hard. Tony couldn't help but blame himself. He felt as though he would have walked to the convenience store with Georgia. Me and them two boys, we searched places that hadn't been seen by man in probably 100 years. There were places we had to carry ladders in and just walk across swamps, said Mike. With the 10 
then population of just 397 the concerned community rallied together in a desperate attempt to bring georgia home safely almost half of them entire population got involved in the investigation whether by handing out flyers or physically searching the area nobody saw georgia accompanied by anybody else nor did anybody witness her being forced into a car and understandably though her family couldn't help but think that worse it wasn't like georgia to just wander off and not return home unfortunately as her parents would soon discover georgia would never be returning home hello yeah you know the girl you're looking for yeah the 12 year old yeah she's dead said the anonymous voice down the line before hanging up just two short days after george's disappearance her parents received this chilling phone call George's grandmother and the town police marshal's wife also received similar phone calls. The phone calls were never able to be traced and have since been lost. The family would soon discover the grim phone calls were not a joke. George really was dead. On the 16th of April, a family of four was taking a shortcut from an apartment complex to Kmart near Gaslebury, which was approximately 30 miles away from where George disappeared. Along this route, they couldn't help but notice a pungent smell emanating in the warm spring air. They, as they inspected where the smell was wafting from, they stumbled across an unimaginable scene. Discarded among the slight woodland and weeds, they discovered a deceased body of Georgia. She was found face up with one leg bent to the knee. Her body was so decomposed that she needed to be identified by medical and dental records. Her family never had to identify her. The bubbly fifth grader had been stabbed once in the back and autopsy concluded that she hadn't been sexually assaulted. George's parents first heard about this discovery of the body from a friend who had been watching the news. This event that evening the police knocked on the door they already knew what they were here to tell them. The shocking murder rocked the small community was a this was a sadistic child killer lurking amongst the townsfolk. People were scared said Jim Manna. the town's marshal and only police officer in town had the general consensus what was that it was done by somebody local and he was still in town did georgia accept a ride from a local this belief was solidified by the fact that there were no signs of struggle where her footprints ended along the dusty roadway just a short distance from a home george's family thought back to tiger's reluctance to move from the nearby crossroad One of the main suspects in the slaying was Albert Lara who came to investigators attention in September 1980. Lara was incarcerated in prison in Fort Madison, Iowa for the murder of 15-year-old Jill Annette Peters when he confessed to Lake County Sheriff Malcolm McCall's. I turned off what seems to be a gravel road, well a paved road half and half and 300 yards or so. I spotted a girl there. I pulled over pulled over on a side she was opposite of me and i started walking to her asking directions and while i was talking to her a car went by after the car passed i grabbed her out of the car and threw her in the car drove up about 2 maybe 300 yards and spotted a house so i turned around i drove down a couple of miles or so and pulled over where a bunch of trees where i kind of hid my car and threw her in the back of the I guess that truck or whatever then drove on found some trees sat there and drank some beer thought for a while and then I took her out of the trunk and put her in the back seat I guess I commenced to rope rape her or something she started struggling she got away I grabbed her 
and at the time my right hand found an object and I speak or a screwdriver or something and I stabbed her on her lower back. His confession was later declared as inconsistent with findings at the crime scene and Lara was ruled out of as a subject in 1980 and again in 1994. In reviewing the transcribed confession of Albert Lara, there were numerous facts given that were in direct conflict with what the investigators discovered at the crime scene and subsequent autopsies, said Gordon Oldman, Oldham, state attorney at the time. Lara was prone to false confessions and was said to confess to murders and other violent crimes countrywide that police could not just substantiate. Jim Mana theorized that Lana had confessed to the murder in the hopes that he would be transferred from the crumbling his prison. He was incarcerated into a Florida prison. The opinion in Lara's guilt is very much divided, however, with other people associated with the investigation believing that he seemed to be a likely suspect in the murder, Leesburg police chief Jim Brown explained, given all the information I had and all the people I questioned, Lara still come up number one suspect. For a number of years, the case remained cold with no suspects were brought to the table. In 2013, however, 30 years after the murder, Georgia was back in the media when investigators announced that they finally had a new lead. Investigators had been reviewing the case when they came across a photograph of a cross necklace that Georgia was wearing when her body was discovered. At the time of the initial investigation, a family friend of Cruz family told investigators that the necklace belonged to Georgia. Upon reinvestigation, however, Georgia's family contended that the necklace didn't belong to Georgia. She often wore a small gold pendant that her grandmother had purchased her for Christmas. This necklace appeared to be a handmade from motorcycle parts. Linda believes that this necklace was a key to identifying Georgia's killers. 17, year old, 17 years have passed and the murder of Georgia still remained unresolved. The police investigated dozens of people over the years, yet not one person saw anything amiss. In a town of approximately 400 people, that in itself is quite unusual. One would assume that if there were an outside vehicle or a new face in their quaint town, then surely somebody would notice. This has led to some to believe that the murderer was perpetrated by one of their own. Was there a child killer in the midst of that was friendly face to Georgia? Someone saw something about the, this little girl. Somebody knows what happened to this little girl, said Detective Robert James. If you have different information on this... If you have information on this case, please contact Simnall County Sheriff's Office by calling them at the crime line. 1-800-423-TIPS